أعوذ بالله السميع العليم من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum Brothers, sisters and respected viewers Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to this second uh, lecture in our series entitled Life, the Islamic Answer. In the first lecture, uh, we tried, we tried to present an overview of the state of our world today with a focus on uh, the idea of the complexity of this world. And what we were trying to establish is that if someone understands the current world in all of its complexity, or at least the level of complexity we described, and we addressed a number of very different issues, but we also tried to show that they are interconnected, we said that we start feeling that there is not only a need, but perhaps an urgency, an urgent need, to try to look at all of these issues from the point of view of our religion, from the point of view of Islam. Wondering whether Islam might have some solutions, some answers to some of these very complex issues. And we can really safely say that humanity has been struggling and dealing with, is with these issues for a while and none of it, none of them seem to be getting any simpler, any easier to resolve. And so from our point of view, from our perspective as people who not only believe in this religion, but also believe that this religion is supposed to be universal and eternal and all-encompassing uh, in the sense that it has solutions and answers to every type of situation and scenario and circumstance that humanity is going to be confronted with, then how come are we not stepping up and how come are we not seeing more thinking and more presence and more voice from an Islamic perspective when it comes to a lot of the issues that we're describing? And more specifically to us, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be thinking and living our lives from an Islamic perspective? Safely saying, can we safely say that the manner in which we're addressing the world, the manner in which we are living in this world, is actually based on Islamic principles today or not? Are we just going along with what we're seeing and with what we're hearing, uh, with what we may refer to as herd mentality and groupthink and so on and so forth? Are we just jumping on this bandwagon and that bandwagon? Or are we actually being deliberate and intentional and doing that which we actually believe represents the Islamic position in a lot of these issues. And so this is where we began and we tried to, as we said, explain the relevance and the need for a series like this or at least start a discussion within our communities and our societies based on what we want to present. And today, inshallah, is going to be the first of these lectures where we begin entering into the topic and the topic is going to be divided in a number of themes uh, 
the first of which is going to be the theme of knowledge. So in every case, when we begin with a theme, when we begin with a section of this series, um, you have to keep in mind that what we're trying to do is to extract from the Holy Qur'an and from the narrations of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt what we're trying to do is to extract the principles of Islamic living and then see how they apply to the theme that we're trying to address. So in this case, for instance, knowledge. We want to understand what does Islam have to say about knowledge. At a very high level, and inshallah we'll get back into this in much more detail, to once we establish the importance of knowledge in Islam and, and we go through the details based on the scripture, based on the teachings of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt. But for the time being, and especially for the many of you, inshallah, who have completed the first series, the first course on Islamic beliefs, I think we can at least start with the assumption that we all agree that what we're looking for, what we're trying to do is to act. And in order to act, you have to have beliefs. Every action that you perform, that you do, is based on your belief system, is based on your worldview. And your worldview is based on your knowledge. You're exposed to things, you're exposed to information, you're exposed to data, you're exposed to ideas through which you filter. And some of them you accept, you consider their arguments valid, you integrate, you assimilate, you internalize, and they become part of your worldview. Once they are now part of your worldview, they are part of your belief system, then all of your actions are going to be based on that belief system. So that's a first point, and inshallah we'll come back to that. But if this point is understood, then already we understand why we're choosing the theme of knowledge as our first theme. That's the first point. The second point, and this is the one that I'm going to be focusing on today, is that in today's world, something that is very current is happening, which is that there is a very big transition towards, and this is something we touched on last time, we want to elaborate a little bit on it this time, there is a transition happening, whether you look at the developed world, whether you look at the underdeveloped or developing world, and I'm using the terms that the majority of people understand with all of the issues and the critiques around those, that terminology and these terms. This is something that we see happening throughout the world that everybody is trying to transition towards or has begun transitioning towards knowledge societies. So what we want to understand, in addition to what we just said, the first point, we're trying to show that if we understand this transition, we understand the world in which we're living today, then it adds a new urgency, a new importance to the topic of knowledge, to the theme of knowledge that we're trying to address. Because after all, the series is about trying to understand the complexity of this world and our position in it based on Islamic teachings. And so we have to begin with, and inshallah we'll make the case for it today, we have to begin with knowledge. Whether we look at it at an ideological level or at an Islamic level as we shall see, or if we look at it from the point of view of what is currently happening on the ground in today's world, 
we see that there is something called knowledge societies that is an all-encompassing type of transition touching every aspect of human life and we are certainly part of it and we are not immune to it therefore we need to understand what it is and we need to understand our position in this so the this topic very quickly the idea for today is that inshallah we don't need to come back to explaining the notion of knowledge societies later so we're only giving enough that we keep the uh, your minds going and the discussion going in your minds as we said the series is going to be focused on islamic teachings but every time we want to anchor it in real world circumstances and environment and climate so we're starting the series with this discussion very quickly Inshallah, we won't need to come back to it, but we are open to coming back to it, of course, depending on the discussions and the questions and the interest. But the idea is that even though we may not keep re-mentioning what we're going to be presenting today, this is what you have to keep in mind as we go through the topic of, or the theme of knowledge. That's the idea, that we're introducing a new theme, we're anchoring it in real world reality, real world events and circumstances, but now we're going to be focusing, once this is done, on the Islamic teachings. And every time, my homework for you, my hope is that when we move to the discussion part of the conversation, that this is what you have in mind. That we take the teachings that we're seeing and we're finding and we're being exposed to Islamically and bringing it back to the realities that we're going to be talking about from now on. So that's the first point. The second thing is, and maybe we can skip that and come back to it towards the end. Let's quickly begin. I'm, I'm seeing the time and we have a commitment that I won't uh, keep the lectures too long. So let's jump into the topic. Knowledge societies, what are they and how did we get here? If we go back in history, we talked about the fact that human beings, because of their social nature, they create societies, they get together and create collectivities because they have interdependencies. I depend on you and you depend on me. And therefore we have to live together so that we can actually make it and survive. When sociologists and historians look at human history, they see that the first societies were hunter-gatherer societies. These were people <clears throat> who were mainly living. Their entire mode of living was based on the idea that they move around in small groups. The idea of small groups has always been there. They move around in small groups looking for their food and their sustenance. They look for water, they look for food, and they hunt. This means that they constantly have to be on the move depending on the resources that they need, depending on the climate, depending, depending on. As a social system, the system was very much based on tribalism. It was a tribal society. And we're not going to get into the details of this. We're going very fast here. But this basically dictated every process and every way of thinking, every relationship between them, every thing that led to someone having more power or less power. All of this was dictated by the tribal structure, the tribal reality the tribal uh, 
habits, the tribal rituals, and so on and so forth. So this is where humanity began. And then after a while, they say, when sociologists and historians look at this, they say there's a jump. There's something significant that happens. There's a significant shift that happens. And this significant shift started happening, happening between 12 and 10,000 years ago, where humanity started moving. You can actually say there are societies that moved from being hunter-gatherer societies to agrarian or agricultural societies. So humanity begins by planting their own food, begins by a rudimentary, a simple type of farming that grows with time. And of course, there is knowledge that grows with it. There are habits that grow with it. There are social structures that grow with it. Because life is now a lot more effective and efficient and easy, the groups of people who live together now starts to grow. So the population, the density of the population grows. You can have much larger groups. Life is a lot easier if you don't need to constantly be on the move every day or every week or every month. You can now stay still. You can create, create, you can sustain yourself by having enough food. The grain, the vegetables, the fruits, and eventually the animals. And then with that, there's all the types of crafts that start emerging too the types of knowledge that are forced, the types of technology required for this. You need a shelter, you need a better shelter because you're not staying there for a week, you're staying there for years. So the way you think about your shelter changes. You need metal, you need wood, you have blacksmiths, you have carpenters, you have people who start specializing very, very slowly. But this is where it begins. And if we look at the population, we see that there's a boom in the density of the population. Suddenly, there are centers, not everywhere. And when we say this, of course, this is where it began. And this continues for millennia. For thousands of years, humanity continued to evolve in this way. And then we reach the 1500s, where you start seeing the seeds of something that would only really happen at a social level very clearly, almost three centuries later, in the 1800s, where you have the Industrial Revolution. So if you look at the manner in which people were living up to that point, around the 1500s in Italy and those areas, and perhaps some other societies around the world, you start seeing people who start living without necessarily relying on farming and agriculture and the related activities around it. There is a move towards a commercial way of living. In the 1800s, this is where the, the revolution happens, and you really have a completely new type of society. And it, it begins in Europe, mainly in the UK and elsewhere, and this begins with the Industrial Revolution. This is where now you can use certain resources and allow yourself to produce as they say, in mass, mass production, so that you're no longer producing for yourself or your family or your tribe. You can actually produce enough to sell to the whole world. But in order to do this, you need the mechanisms and the technology that goes behind it. And so this creates the factories, and this creates the division of labor 
an Indian education system and a training system to produce the people who will work in the factories. And with time, if you want to really understand this industrial revolution and what it meant for society and the division of labor, think of the assembly line in the factory where everybody has their very clear role. And the way you look at society, if you were to look at the socioeconomic classes, you see that there are clearly people who own the factory, who own the business, who own the equipment that is referred to as capital, and everybody else who is working in there. Okay, so you have your workers, and you have the people who own the capital. And this, of course, if you look at the type of society, this type of society, the structure of that type of society, the forces within that type of society, completely different than the tribal society. And that's why when historians and sociologists look at this, they say this is an entirely new, different type of society. Every aspect of human life has now changed. When we talk about industrial society, does it mean that every society on earth switched to it? Absolutely not. In fact, the majority of the societies around Earth did not switch to it. Only very few societies in Europe switched to it. And usually, it was very much later when other societies were confronted with crises, with situations where they were forced to, did they start switching towards becoming industrialized societies. In fact, even today, there are many if not most of societies around the world, are still agricultural societies with industrial hubs. There are some pockets of industrial societies within their larger society, but they have not fully switched to becoming industrial societies. Not every aspect of their lives have actually transitioned, contrarily to what you see in Europe, for instance, or you see in the United States, where agriculture becomes very secondary in terms of what's the motor, what's the engine for the economy, the means of production. How is society structured? Is it structured around agriculture or structured around other types of activities? If you look at the United States, you could certainly say that's not the case today, really not structured around agriculture. Same thing for pretty much all of Europe. Whereas if you go to other countries, you see that agriculture is still a very significant part of, or the main engine of, their socioeconomic activities. So what does this mean? First of all, the move towards industrial societies, once again, when a society is switching from one type of living and one type of lifestyle and one type of culture and education system and so on and so forth, it's because it's so much more effective. They're feeling the benefits because this is very costly. It's a very difficult move. There's a lot of sacrifice and it comes at a large cost. So why would they move towards this? It's because they're seeing the benefits of it. And inshallah, we're going to focus on a point here. Who is seeing the benefits? It's the people who hold the power, who keep moving society in a certain direction, which is beneficial to them, to their own interests. So one thing that we notice, once again, just like when we moved from the hunter-gatherer to the agricultural society. Here again, the move from agricultural to industrial society, you see a huge boom in the density of the population. Now you have the big cities. And in those cities, in a lot of cases, if they are industrial cities, it means those cities are built around the industry, are built around the factories. 
and look at the history of the United States and you start understanding, you know, Philadelphia and Boston and elsewhere, you see that they were built around the idea that there's a factory, there's a Ford factory that comes there and it changes entirely the landscape. It changes entirely the socioeconomic classes. It changes, therefore, the education system, the social system, the cultural system, and so on and so forth. That's one point. There's a point here I'm going to skip over, inshallah, we'll, we might come back to it much later, but there's an entire discussion here about who is doing the labor in the industrial society, and therefore, at that point, especially as those societies were moving out of, out of agricultural and into industrial and moving quickly within the industrial maturity model, let's call it, the role of slavery in there. What was it? And could they have done it without that role? And if so, how would that have worked? In any case, park that for now. One day we can come back to it. Another very important point to keep in mind when we talk about industrial societies is that they have a huge need for fuel, a huge need for energy. Because you're no longer producing for yourself only, as you were in the agricultural society. You took care of yourself, you took care of your family. You have enough chicken, you have enough lamb, you have enough sheep, you have enough plants for yourself, for your family, for your extended family, for the little society that you have. And that's it. That's what you work for, based on the cycles of nature. You're not going beyond that. When you move to the industrial society, you're not thinking in that way anymore. You're now thinking much larger, and you need an infrastructure for this. You need to think about importing and exporting of goods. What is it that I can grow here? If I can't grow it here, but I'm interested in it, what do I do? How do, it, do I create for myself a network and a market in another country so that I can go get it? And how do I sell it here and at what price? Therefore, how much do I have to get it there? And so on and so forth. And then you have the transportation systems and you have the communication systems. And all of this generates new markets and new knowledge and new technologies and so on and so forth. Okay? In addition to this, if you keep thinking about the resources, everybody is struggling to find the resources that they want, they run out, or there's scarcity of it, the value increases, what do you do? This generates an entire economy around, and we're not going to get into the details of that, but an entire, and human history is, is a proof of this throughout human history, but certainly after the Industrial Revolution, of wars. Smaller wars and World wars, including World War I, for instance. So, of course, there's a huge component of this that has to do with the resources. You're trying to overtake the resources that are not available on your current territory. Therefore, you have to expand. You have to find ways to go get those resources and use them. The easiest, most simple, rudimentary way that humanity has done this is by direct military overtaking and confrontation. And of course, there are much more subtle ways of doing it now, right? Softer ways of, of doing this. And then this is where you start also seeing the... Um, you also start seeing the, the beginning of what we today know very well under the name of consumerism. So we're talking, you know, beginning of it two centuries ago, and it has only increased with time. And this doesn't happen again in a vacuum on its own. It happens because of the entire cultural, uh, political, economic uh, circumstances around it, where you have a culture where everybody is trying to get the next thing. And if you have it, you're trying to find the 
the newest version of it. This began with the industrial age because you are a society where you're constantly being offered something. You're not a, in a society where you take something and you know you're not going to see some, uh, something that looks like it for a few years. Therefore, you have to keep it. You have to build it in a way that it will, be, it will remain intact or preserved and good enough and resilient for long enough. And you don't think twice about getting to replace it, which is exactly the opposite of a consumerist society, where everything is disposable, nothing has really a lot of value, it's so easy to replace anyone and anything, right? So the more you move into the industrial age, the more you see the consumerism and everything around it. Of course, the marketing around it, the sustainability, the pollution, so on and so forth. All of that is a domino effect. I'm not going to go into all the details because I won't have time. So we're saying around the 1800s, we really start seeing the big industrial societies emerge. Again, does it mean that the entire earth moved? Every population, every society, every state moved to that model? No, of course not. Only a few moved to that model. If we look at Islam, for instance, we don't have time now. This has to be its own series or at least a couple of lectures on it. What was happening in the Islamic world throughout all of this? Okay, inshallah, one day we'll get to that and see how in Islam, when Islam began with the advent of the mission of the Holy Prophet at the very beginning and up to two to three centuries, Islam was on the rise. If you read the Eurocentric, the European version of history, this period where the Holy Prophet was born and then he begins his mission and then Islam is brought to the, on the scene, all of this and afterwards for a few centuries, what is it called in human history? They call that the Dark Ages. They call that the Medieval Times. And they say this was all backwards and humanity was regressive and we didn't understand anything. It was an age of ignorance. Yet it was only an age of ignorance in Europe. It was not an age of ignorance in the Islamic lands. But because history is written by the Europeans, from their point of view, they were in a very regressive state. They were living dark ages. And so when they finally woke up and they wanted to go learn, where did they go? They would go to the Islamic lands to learn because Islam was so advanced. In fact, it was centuries ahead of the Europeans. And this remained the case for six to eight centuries. But Islam was truly on the rise for two to three centuries in a booming way, in an explosive way. And then eventually Europe woke up. And then Islam started to go on the decline. And Europeans are learning and integrating and assimilating the knowledge from the Muslims. So they are on the rise as a society, at least technologically and scientifically and their research and so on and so forth. And Islam is on the decline. And at some point, they were able to say, everything that they have, we have learned, and now we're going to start building on them. In the meantime, the Muslims continued on their decline, and historians who have studied Islam say that that continued to be the case, that decline in the Islamic lands continued to be the case until when? When was the alarm that awoke the Islamic world? When Napoleon entered Egypt, when the Europeans came back after the Crusades, after all of that, 1798, Napoleon enters Egypt. 
And then the Muslims wake up and they see that they have no chance of fighting Napoleon and his army who now have fire weapons and they are still living centuries behind. And this generated a movement in the Islamic world that has continued until today where everybody is struggling. All the top thinkers in the Islamic world are struggling to see what do we need to do and how do we change ourselves so that we go back to our days of glory and recreate the golden age of Islam where we are at least catching up with what is happening in the rest of the world. If not, you know, reclaiming our position as the leaders of the world in thought and in science and in innovation and in technology. Every major thinker in Islam over the past two centuries is dealing with this question in one way or another, from one angle or another. That's the main preoccupation of all the big Muslim thinkers anywhere you look from every school of thought. So some of them are saying we leave our tradition behind because obviously it did not serve us. Let's just do what the Europeans did. And what's holding us back is our tradition. You have on the other extreme those who say, no way, we are only going to go back to what they used to do in the first centuries. We are only going to look at the Salaf. We are only going to look at the early version of Islam because that's what worked. And we don't care and we don't see and we don't hear anything going on because it's all wrong. And then you have everything in between. Everybody who says we have to mix and match. We have to see what do we need to adapt, what we need to uh, modify. Where do we need to have flexibility? Where we need to reinterpret, do new research, re-understand our religion? And where do we focus on? Okay, so every big thinker is dealing with this. Inshallah, one day we'll go back to this. This is a topic on its own. Let's go back now. While all of this is happening, the next big revolution that happens is the information revolution. There's a, a boom or an explosion of knowledge and information that happens to save time so that we don't go through all the details. That happens around the 70s, the 1970s. So we're really not talking a long time ago. This is where you start seeing the true shift towards what is today called, there's a lot of terms for it. I'm going to start by calling it information society. Sometimes we, we're going to use the term interchangeably, but I'll explain one of the ways where people distinguish between information societies, knowledge societies, post-industrial societies, post-Fordist societies, networked societies, it may be all referring to the same thing or there are nuances between them. And this is a very, very big topic. Again, we're, we're not going into the details of how all of this happened. Some say there was an accumulation of knowledge, but there's also a technology that goes with it. And some people even identify the moment that the transistor was born. When the transistor came on the scene, it changed all of the technology. Since then, all that has been happening is the transistors have been getting smaller and better and faster. Therefore, they were able to create better, stronger, smarter, smaller, more efficient computers that can do more. Right? And so that was the beginning of it. 1940s, 1950s, all the way to 1970s. That's perfected. And then it begins a whole domino effect leading up to today. Okay? So what's happening there? Once again, is everybody moving in that direction? No. There are still societies in their agricultural state. Some societies move to the industrial and from the small fraction of societies that move to the industrial 
stage, some started converting to the information age or to become information societies. So using the same way of defining societies, the main means of production, the main activities of those societies are no longer industrial activities. They are becoming information activities. This is where they start referring to people. Some people are blue collar and some people are white collar. Blue collar meaning people who do manual labor. If you're doing the manual labor and you're not contributing to the information aspect of society, you're still in the industrial age. That's what you're contributing to. But society has moved on. Now we have knowledge workers. We have white collar workers, right? And this is where we're going to move our society. We're going to structure our society. We're going to change the education systems. We're going to change the social systems, the political systems, the economic systems, all of it so that our main activities as a society are related to knowledge, are related to information. Well, what about the rest? Well, two things. Eventually, what we want to do is to get rid of human beings have to, having to do any of this work. So we move towards automating everything. You can create robots and you can create computers that put a car together and that fix a car for you. You don't need mechanics and engineers and putting all of this together. All of this can be done better by robots and machines than it can be by human beings. And so on and so forth. This is the future. Can we do this overnight right now? No. We need a transition plan. What do we do? We export the labor. We have other societies who are still in the industrial or less stages. And we have them deal with all of that so that we can focus on what will allow us to consolidate our power in the world. And once again, just like there was a move from hunter-gatherer to agricultural or agrarian as they call it, and then from agrarian to industrial, it's because you're noticing that there is something that makes it worth your while. What is this something? If you go back and you read all of the sociology and all of the history written around this, the secret behind this is one word that has become very powerful over the past 70 years or so, 50 years or so in sociology and philosophy and all of these studies. The word is power. Power. Everything is related to power. How much power do you have? What allows you to consolidate it? What allows you to maintain it? What allows you to generate more of it? And what keeps other people away from it? So when you were in the industrial age, what gave you this power based on your thinking and your understanding of the world was to have the means, the industrial means. Then people started waking up with all of the advancement and the technology and the research and, and, and they start realizing that in fact there is something under much more important, much more fundamental that will allow you not only to understand and to control everything related to the industrial world, it goes way beyond that. You start rethinking what a human being is. You start rethinking what matter is because you can control it. It's all data. It's all information. You have enough information, you can do anything. Especially if you add the computing power to it.
especially if you add the artificial intelligence to it, which is what they're doing now. This is the next step. This is the fourth revolution. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the idea is, for instance, if you start, stop seeing the human being as this miraculous entity, and you start understanding the human being simply as a big lump of biological material, which can be simplified as a genetic code. And the genetic code is nothing but information. A human being can't understand and compute that information, but a computer can. So you have enough powerful computers together to translate the genetic code, and then you can manipulate anything related to what is referred to as a human being. And then you can expand that to every plant, to every animal, to every living entity, to every bacteria and virus, and so on and so forth. They do the same thing with physics, with the manner in which atoms interact with each other, subparticles interact, subatomic particles interact with each other, and so on and so forth. And this applies to every aspect of life. And so this is where they see the future. This is what is going to give you the most power. The new capital of the world is not money. The new capital of the world is not buildings. It's not fields and lands. Although those things are important. But the true power in the world today lies in who has the information. How much of it do they have? Who can understand it? Who can use it better? And who can generate more of it? Or in short, whoever controls the information can generate new knowledge and can therefore control everything that falls in the entire cycle from beginning to end. And so if you think of education systems in the world, if you think of economic systems in the world, political systems in the world, everything is headed in that direction. Okay? The, there are some people who have criticized this idea and the critiques, generally speaking, are only based on the terminology. The reality that some societies have now shifted their main activities to things related to information and knowledge, everybody agrees on. It's just that some thinkers believe that by calling it an information society, you're saying that there is a break with the previous society, which was the industrial society, when in fact the break was, is not so real. Okay? And so they want to show that it's just a more mature, more sophisticated model. So they propose to call it information capitalism. We're back to square one. So even when there are critiques of this, the critiques are coming to the same conclusion that this is where the world not should move, Let's put, we're not talking about where it should go. We're talking about what has actually happened in those societies. So that's the first point. So we have terms like information capitalism, we have post-industrialism, we have post-Fordism, where because Ford and his company basically dictated and structured for a very long time how the United States were structured as a society, politically, culturally, economically, and then of course this was the model that other countries were trying to mirror. Now they call it a post-Fordist society, where this, all of this is way beyond. You know, it's a thing of the past, we've moved on to something else. Of course, there's the network society and so on and so forth. There's also something 
that is referred to as the fourth industrial revolution. They say that the first industrial revolution, when the industrial revolution happened, we needed, as we said, an engine, something to move the machines. It was water, it was pressure, it was coal, something that creates pressure in the machines. So we have steam engines, right? That was the first layer. That was the first industrial revolution. This was followed by the second industrial revolution, which was electric, electricity. I said them. The third industrial revolution, we went to the electronic world or the technological world with the computers, with everything related to that, including the internet, including the networks that come with the internet. Now we're trying, some are trying to move to or have already begun moving towards what they refer to as the fourth industrial revolution, where you can add a layer of artificial intelligence, of machine intelligence to enormous amounts of data. And then you see what happens. They're not sure what happens, or they might be, but we don't know yet. We start seeing some indications of where it might go. You will have a human being who is augmented, right? You can decide to replace your natural eye that cannot see all of the wavelengths, that can't see behind this wall, with a technological version of it that is a much more enhanced version, and so on and so forth. Maybe you can plug your brain directly into Wi-Fi. You can plug your brain directly into the internet. Everybody is working on this. They call it the noosphere or the collective intelligence, which is a mixing and matching, not only of my intelligence and yours, but connected to everything available on the machines. There is millions of dollars being invested in this right now, all over the world. And all of the big societies have already moved in that direction. Some of them have been moving there for the past 20 years, very openly. They have changed, for instance, what we refer to as human rights. In 2000 and since 2000, one country after another has been recognizing the right to access to the internet as a basic human right. As basic as your freedom of speech, your freedom of choosing religion, the freedom to be connected to the internet. It is a right and every state is responsible to ensure that you can connect at your leisure. Some countries have put this in their constitutions. Finland has put this in its constitution. Canada is getting there right now. We're a little bit behind. It's, they're working on it. That a basic human right of every Canadian citizen is to have access to the internet, free access to the internet. Because they understand that without this, they can't move their society to a knowledge society. There are barriers. And this is a huge problem in information societies and knowledge societies. Just like we explained at the level, the macro level, some societies in the world are moving. The faster these are moving, the more the gap is growing between those who have and the, those who don't have, the have-nots. The social inequality is growing. You would not have this type of social inequality in an agricultural society. In an industrial society, you can have a lot more social inequality than an agricultural one. And then in an information society, you can have a lot more social inequality than you had in an industrial society. Because the means, because the structure and the processes allow for that. It becomes exponential in math, right? So this is the difference. It's not a geometric expansion. Another things to keep in mind very quickly is that 
So this affects every aspect, every dimension of these societies. So of course you're going to have to change your education system. You're no longer creating workers who are going to be on an assembly line. You're creating workers who are going to be knowledge workers. So how do I change my education system? What do I need to do now to my five-year-old so that they move in that direction and by 18 when they enter the marketplace they are doing what I need them to do to keep my economy going. So this is your entire education system, your cultural system, your political system, your economic system. And of course this has to now be all on a platform which we don't have time to talk about now. Maybe later we'll talk about globalization. Okay? With the industrial age, there's a reason why Napoleon was going to enter Egypt. Right? You need resources, you need to expand, you need, you need. So this is exponentially more now than it was before, but there are much smarter ways of doing it than open military confrontation. Okay? So of course, as usual, the moment we talked about power, it's those who have the power who get to create a system that allows them to keep their power and not let anyone else come close to it. And so this is where they will have enough influence to decide how the political system will be created, how the public institutions will be put in place, the social institutions, the legal system, and so on and so forth, right? Because they already have the power. And this is in all societies, and we don't need to spend more time on this. And this is where, as I said, it has to be worthwhile. When you see a company like Google decide, this was the beginning of it, very open. One of their projects was that, and the project did not work, right? The project was that they would scan and make available every single book in the world so that anyone can Google and read any book anywhere in the world freely from their computer at home simply by accessing Google or Google Book. But then all the publishers and all the big, uh, the, the entire industry, the publishing industry rose against them because they would lose a lot of revenue. Google still went ahead and scanned. They have them. They just didn't make them public so that people are still forced to go buy the book. But why would Google do that? Why would they, they want to scan every single book ever written anywhere around the, around the world? Because they realize what information means. And anyone who investigates and who researches what Google has been doing nonstop since the day they have been put together, they've been founded until now, they see that they are working on power through information. And today, who can bypass Google? What type of information can you have access to without having access to Google? So how much power does Google have? And to other extent, you know, every other company to which most likely we are freely giving our information, right? That's why they allow you to use it freely, because it's an exchange of your personal, private, personal data. Who you are, what are your behaviors, where do you click, how many seconds do you spend somewhere, what do you not click on, where, uh, where are your interests, what are the interests of people like you, where are you located, where do you move, and so on and so forth. Okay, and so when you start going on social media and the Facebooks and so on and so forth, that's how their entire business model is based on this. Their entire revenue is based on this. In any case, let's keep going very quickly so that we can finish this. As we said, one of the biggest issues 
So you have countries like Canada, you have countries like the UK that have invested tremendous amounts of you know, human power and money and capital and so on and so forth, moving their societies towards becoming more and more knowledge societies. And there's ongoing research on this. And then you also have bodies like the UNESCO and the United Nations and other areas, specialized areas, the WSIS in the UN, who do a lot of work on this. Why? Because they keep saying that this is what's causing inequality in the world. The more some societies are becoming knowledge societies and information societies, the more some are being left behind. And this, is, this social inequality causes very huge problems. Not because we care about those people. It's because it creates instability in the system. It creates fragmented societies where people are revolting and people are rising up against other peoples. So we need to calm this down. We need to create a society where enough people feel like they are all part of, they are all participating in what is happening, that the social inequality is not so bad. Okay? And so what do we do? So they do a lot of work to teach states, to show states how to move, how to transition from being an industrial or even agricultural society towards becoming a knowledge society. Even in very advanced countries, even in countries that want to be called or are calling themselves information societies or knowledge societies, and the majority of them are, by the way, very modest, you know, in the UK and elsewhere, they will not openly say we are a knowledge society. They say we are working towards becoming because they recognize, just like the UN says, that it's not all of society internally that is actually part of this. It's a small minority that is part of this. What's the percentage of people not only who have access to the internet? This is why they say if tomorrow a switch was flicked and everybody on earth had now free access to the internet, would everything just change overnight? No. People don't have the literacy, the knowledge background to use the internet. They don't have the technology. If the technology is given, they don't know how to use it. If they knew how to use it, there might be a language barrier. There might be a literacy barrier. How do I filter through all of this information? How do I know that this is, oh, this is created for humor and entertainment. This is created seriously, but it's criticized. And this is, no, this is acceptable. This requires a lifetime of education and training so that you get there. You need a whole society working on this so that you have enough people contributing where the majority are now part of this. So this is where the UNESCO, for instance, keeps emphasizing to create a knowledge society. You can't leave anyone behind. Everybody in your society has to be participating in. So this is one distinction that you hear often between information society and knowledge society. Knowledge societies, the UN pushes that because it assumes that you are working towards a participatory type of society, an inclusive society where everybody has access to at least a minimum. And the end result is that this is better for the society overall. You have a much better, much stronger economy as a result of this, because your weakest link is strong enough and still participating in, in your information and your knowledge production, consumption, and so on and so forth. So I think I'm going to stop here. The next things that I wanted to present so we can leave these for the next time, inshallah, is basically, this is all I had for today. In addition to 
starting to present our, we can call it our table of contents. Now what? So now that I said I wanted to get this out of the way, I wanted to set the stage with the last lecture being the overall series and this lecture focused on knowledge. This is what's happening at the level of knowledge in the world. Now we want to turn attention to our attention to what Islam says about knowledge. So this is the beginning of our first theme, addressing our first theme. What does Islam say about knowledge? What is the value and importance and necessity of knowledge according to Islam? What is knowledge? What type of knowledge? What are the sources of knowledge? Is it just an information dump or do you have to be selective? Is there an ethics around it or it's everything goes? And then what, what do we do with it? Once you know what are the responsibilities associated with it? And what does this mean at the level of an individual? What does this mean at the level of a community? What does this mean at the level of society and the world? Okay, so inshallah, this is going to be kind of, this is the mapping of where we want to go. I'm not going to go into more details of this. And so this is kind of the, let's call it the table of contents, as I said, for the, the first theme, which is the theme of knowledge. So let's stop here, and inshallah, we continue next time. And we have plenty of time for questions, concerns, a bit of an inshallah, that we put enough in your food for thought that there could it should generate some discussions or the beginning of some discussions that we keep in mind as we go through this series. So, any thoughts, any concerns? We'll, we'll clean it after. So. so. There are some uh, cities uh, that are planning to be uh, built uh, and are, have already started, um, like, uh, speci especially in the uh, Islamic world, if you wish to say. Uh, and I'm referring here to... Uh, a city by the name of uh, Project Neom uh, that's uh, located in a more than strategic area, if not one of the most strategic area in the world. And uh, uh, it seems like uh, uh, the knowledge uh, that you've spoken about today, the information society, um, is probably, that city will probably reach the highest uh, peak of uh, that revolution uh, where they are planning to uh, create uh, this kind of uh, robotic automated city um, and it would be interesting to analyze the fact that it is in such a strategic place in the Islamic world and what what does that uh, constitute to what other challenge will it constitute uh, and in the in, in the future and um, and the groups uh, the groups you mentioned about uh, some of the Islamic world choosing to uh, follow, let's say, uh, the European model uh, because they didn't uh, know what else to follow and others to follow the so-called uh, predecessor level uh, or state and all that's in between. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a great example that we can, or case uh, that we can study. Absolutely, and this is real. Yeah. It's already here, right? Yeah, so, and, and thank you for that. And I think uh, it's, it's, you can talk more about it if you want. I'm sure others are going to be interested. Um, 
the, and uh, there's too much to say. My, my brain is going in, in all sorts of direction here. The idea that um, I think we're trying to emphasize, and this is a, a really good example that you gave, but the idea we're trying to emphasize is where are we in all of this, right? This has to turn into thought. It has to turn into action. And our ideal situation is that it turns into action based on Islamic teachings, Islamic principles. And of course, for us, we're not really preoccupied with you know, running a country or changing anything. That's not our preoccupation. Our first and foremost preoccupation is, for me as an individual, what does this mean, right? So the, when you hear this type of description of what is going on in the world, and I'm sure many or most of you, if not all of you, you already know this. Maybe it's not packaged this way. Maybe it's not presented in this way where there is a barrage of information and cases and data just dumped on you in a very small amount of time. What does it trigger in terms of thoughts? How do you react to it internally? What are you thinking when you hear this? And keeping in mind where we're trying to go in this series, right? But generally speaking, when you hear this, what are you thinking? That, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I want to know. Where does your mind go when you hear all of this? The purpose of? Yes, what is the purpose of that? Exactly, that's one extremely important question. Where are we heading? So who's we? That's a question I have. When you say, where are we heading? Who's we? Exactly. Is it we as a... As a community? As a community? Or is it we as a nation? As a nation? Exactly. As Muslims, as Canadians, as youth, as individuals. But each one of these is going to probably have a very different answer. Right? What else? Who is? Founding. Who is founding? Yeah. And I think we alluded to that a little bit by saying that we kept it general. And we just said there are those who have the power. Right? This is the whole area of investigation. And it's a very big field. Now in philosophy, in sociology, in history, this whole notion of power. It's a whole academic field right now. So who has the power? How do they gain it? How do they keep it? How do they consolidate it, make it stronger, and prevent others from having it? Okay, that's another excellent question. What else? Should we go along with it or resist it or what do we do? Should we be part of that 20% that's supporting that 1%? Or shouldn't we be part of that 20%? As some sociologists have said, why is it that uh, there is a theory of, of you know, less than a percent uh, governing the world uh, through their power or money? Uh, and and uh, they are able to do that thanks to 20% uh, of the world who is supporting them uh, because they are given, they have mutual, or they're give, they, they're synchronous, they are relying upon them. But uh, 
where where at what level this is the question can we um, what level uh, do we have to act or do we have to change or do we have to make a revolution is it the 70% that's left the 20 or the 1 mm -hmm. yeah these are excellent points and they have they keep being brought up and obviously like the answer is always as they say the the devil's in the details as they say um, the cutting up of, of the percentages this way is sometimes problematic because you have to add other components to it. Because if you're living, you know, in, in Zimbabwe, in a village, it's completely different than if you're living in the heart of New York, right? And in one case, you know, your resistance, if you want to resist something like this, might look very different than how you would resist in another. And what you can actually do and what you can't do is changing by the minute. And this is what we tried to talk about in the first time. And there are entire books now written about this. Some thinkers are dealing with this. Is it still possible to opt out? Is it still possible not to be connected to the system? If you are living in certain areas of the world, and this is what we tried to, to emphasize in the last time that we met, that the more complex the world becomes, the more humanity evolves and matures, the more interdependent we become which means that it becomes more and more impossible for you to disconnect. It might have been a lot easier if, you were, if we were in an agricultural society, but we moved to an industrial society. And it might have been a lot easier had it been only an industrial society like we had in the 1950s. But now we have the new industrial society or the information and knowledge and network society. Is it still possible to opt out? And if you opt out, it's at what cost? And is that the right thing to do or not? Is this to your benefit individually? Is this to your benefit uh, for your family? Is this to your benefit for your community? Is it to your benefit for your society? And then at the end of this, we believe that we are always supposed to be agents working for the greater good. So is the best way for you to be an agent working for the good to be outside of the system or inside the system. And if you are working towards the good, maybe this is the good. Maybe you need to be fully participating in this. Because until now, we, what we've tried to do, we haven't, we've tried to focus. There's a lot of domino effects on, in how the world is changing that I'm not really going into. Because the point here is not to criticize. I'm only trying to provide a description an objective description. If someone were to take a snapshot of society, this is what it looks like today. Without highlighting too much of the negative or the positive. It's just to say, this is what it is. Because if we do one or the other, then you're going to be tend to, to try to rebalance that power. You see the good, you're going to say, but we need to focus on the bad. If I mention all the bad, then you're going to say, but what about the good? You didn't talk about all the good that comes out of this. So we're trying to provide it in, a most, in the most descriptive way possible so that when we say, you know, we have tried to look at things objectively, now that we understand what, what's happening, we need to ask ourselves some serious questions just like you guys did. And where would you say should we start? So I would, but you guys tell me, I would say the first layer, which we're not going to do here, right? We're, we're done doing this. This was a lecture one, which was for the entire series.
The lecture two, which is today, was for the, the, the theme that we want to get into, which is knowledge. After this, we're now going to focus on the whole Qur'an and the narrations. Okay? But, with that said, perhaps one of the first steps has to be understanding the world in which we live. So keep that in mind. Because someone whose image of the world is still the agricultural society is going to miss all of this and not be able to act accordingly. And someone who still thinks that we're living in the 1950s is still not going to be able to react accordingly. Okay? So maybe that becomes one of the first steps. Another first step or one of the first steps absolutely needs to be understanding what Islam has to say about all of this. So before I move, before I act, I need to know, does Islam have anything to say about this? Or is it one of those things where it says, humanity can evolve on its own, mature on its own. We've given you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I've given you reason, I've given you a critical mind. Go do your research, go do your own work, and see what works best for you, and do that. That's a possibility too. As many thinkers seem to be leading towards. They say this is not the domain of religion in general or not the domain of Islam specifically, right? Because it has nothing to do with your relationship with God or your relationship with your spirituality or your afterlife, for instance. So these become very important elements that we have to keep in mind as we embark on this series. So as we said, inshallah, we continue to do this to focus on our side here but this is what, what I'm going to expect from you and what I'm going to hope from you. And this is your homework, is that you keep making those linkages with what's happening in the real world. At the end of this, and this might be a little disappointing to say, and I hope it's not. I hope this is motivating and inspiring for you to hear. In a lot of cases, we may not have a black and white answer at the end. None of us have a direct line towards a revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell us in this situation, this is your duty. But at least we will have said, we can say when we're confronted with these situations is that first of all, we try to understand the situation as best we can. And two, we try to understand what religion has to say about these things in general and then apply the general principles to what we're seeing on the ground. Is there a guarantee that we're going to have the right answer in every case? Of course not. And this is, to someone, they might say, this is something that is a dead end, I won't even embark on that if I don't know that you're just going to give me and dictate the answer. And I'm hoping that none of you are in that category. To the others, inshallah, and this is a lesson that we should learn from history, is that the civilizations and the societies and the communities and the people who are able to stay ahead, who are able to remain in positions of leadership and influence, are the ones that were able to quickly adapt to what was happening around them. And not just watch as the world zooms by. Right? And so this means that we constantly have to be in a situation of reinterpreting and reapplying, retranslating. But it needs to start from a solid foundation that we know what the Holy Quran says. 
We understand all the principles of Islam. And we understand all the main teachings of Islam. All that remains now is which ones apply and which ones do we prioritize? And how do we work together? How do we manage all of this together so that we make it work? Okay, so inshallah, I leave you with this. And I know that I'm expecting, inshallah, that there's going to be a feeling on your side that there's homework that needs to be done here, right? There is reading on your part. There is thinking on your part that is expected. Today I'm keeping it light. In the next uh, lectures, I'll push a lot more for a little bit more of a discussion. But this is what we're trying to, to do and what we're, where, where we're hoping to go. If you're looking for references, resources on all of this, this is one of my areas of expertise in my PhD, knowledge societies, digital economies, globalization. So I spent years researching this. I can inundate you with data and reports and research. There are some big names in the field that you should definitely at least look at. They give you kind of an, you know, a, a taste of what's happening in, this, in the world from these points of view. But I think with what, what we gave today, it should already put a whole plan or a whole you know, map in front of you. And then from there, you can easily find information thanks to Google and other resources freely available to you. Okay, are there any questions, concerns, comments? I, I don't want to force uh, or end the discussion in, in any way, shape, or form. The system, which is yeah, yeah. Like conspiracy. Yes. Yeah. And also, it's about the, the, the system, you know, like uh, how, can you, how can you define it and regarding to what we have just said now and the evolution of the society and about the, the power. Yeah, so the question is about, you know, how, how do systems fit into all of this? And it's a big question that I was hoping we would not talk about. Um, but, you know, two words on systems is it's that, um, you know, there was a time. Where do I begin? There was a time when in the humanities and in the social sciences, there was a, a structuralist turn where the majority of the research or a lot of the researchers adopted what was called structuralism or structuralist thinking. And then eventually one of the streams that came out of that was systems thinking. And today it's a whole huge theory called systems thinking and it is applied in a number, a very large number of fields. Sometimes very well and it's very useful and sometimes it doesn't work at all but it's still imposed in those fields. In any case, the idea is that in sociology for instance, they say, you know, you can put the, the let's, let's take economy as an example. Um, they say that a human being in an economic system and any system that you look at in sociology, any system is a closed system. 
So you have to only focus and isolate that system. When I look at economy, the economic system or the market in a country, for instance, I forget about politics or religion or culture or history or, or, or. I isolate only that system. It could be the legal system. It could be the cultural system. It could be the family system. That's how sociologists do it. That's one. Once the system is isolated, then you have to understand how the system works. How do the pieces of the system interact with each other to keep the system alive? So in the economic system, the classic version is that there is offer and demand. There are actors, there are components of the system, dots, nodes in the system that are offering and others are demanding, they need. And this creates everything that you need to explain that system and to keep it alive and keep going. And if you modify any of these ingredients, let's say you isolate seven ingredients, for instance, one of them is offer, one of them is demand, then you have the people, okay? The people put together, be, create markets, and then you start making the system more and more complicated. So for instance, you open the system to importing and exporting. Now you're gone beyond that market to other countries. And you look at it over time, or you add inflation, or blah, blah, blah. Okay? That's the system. In order to do that, you have to keep isolating and simplifying every aspect so that the system works. So that you can predict what will happen next week, or in two years, or in 50 years. That's what they try to do in systems theory. That's the whole point of a system. The issue is that with time, they start realizing that you know, it's not really working appropriately. There are things that they miss. Or suddenly something happens and they see, why were we not able to predict this? Inshallah, maybe we talk about this. This might be a, a very valuable thing. Very recently, and there are Nobel Prizes that were given for this, for Danielle Kahneman and others, there's something called behavioral economics that was introduced. Nudging behavioral economics. What is that? They started saying that the economic system does not, it's supposed to work as though every human being is like a robot. The assumption in the economic system, all the economists have been trained in the world to think that a human being will always act based on their best interest. So if everyone acts, acts based on their best interest, you will have a very well working financial system. That's Adam Smith, capitalism, so on and so forth. You fast forward to the last 20 years, and they say that's not really working. Proof. You walk in a store, and when you reach the cash, you have two rows of chocolate bars. Is it in your best interest to buy the chocolate bar? It's not. The chocolate bar was also in the store earlier. You did not buy it. But now that you're done your shopping after an hour and a half or two hours and you reach the counter and it's very easy and very colorful and very cheap and right in front of you as you wait in line, you probably will pick up one or two and you'll add them and you'll buy them and you might even eat them. What just happened there? Is this your best interest or not? Someone explains to you that it's your best interest to plan for your retirement. Yet, most people will not plan for their retirement until it's too late. Take the same person who decided not to apply, not to plan, but you make it a default that whether they like it or not, by default, every month you are taking out of their paycheck or their revenue a certain amount that goes to their plan. 
their savings plan for their pension. Do they accept or not? Probably they will accept. So if it's by default, people accept. So you make an option, not something, not an option, you make it by default, people accept it. If you make it something that they have to do work for, they won't do it. Is this motivated by best interest? No, there's something else at work. And so on and so forth. And so there are people who have spent a lot of time looking at this to say, maybe there is more than what we understood in the system, the economic system, for instance. Now they're talking about behavioral economics and biases and nudging and how do we change policies in countries using all of that so that people do without us coercing them, right? So inshallah we'll talk about that. I think it's an important topic. But all that to say, the systems in themselves, they do work. But they're not full and perfect explanations of what is going on. People who are interested in the systems, I would say you need to start by studying the system. There are big thinkers who have spent a lot of time on systems, especially in sociology, Bourdieu and Luhmann and others, who uh, have tried to explain a lot of the social phenomena just by looking at the systems. But the systems are not a full and a perfect explanation of what's happening. They try to predict society will move this way. In a system, for the system to work, there are those who have power. In a systems language, they say those who have power are at the center of the system. And all the others are at the periphery, at the margins. And everything in the system is those who are on the margins. For instance, a Muslim country trying to gain power. They are trying to move towards the center. How do you move toward the center? You need to do whatever you need to do to buy capital in the system. So what's the currency of that system? Every system has its own currency. In a system of marital relationship, there's a currency because you're part of a family or you're part of a spouse. In a religious system, the currency is different. In a political system, the currency is different. What is the currency that I need to spend, buy with, that gain me capital, that allows me to move from the periphery to the center and push someone out and I become the power? I become at the center. That's the entire systems theory, right? And so with Luman and others, they've tried to make it even more sophisticated as a system and very thick books have been written about this to explain how this would work in a family structure, in a legal structure, in a church structure, in a, in a, in a and so on and so forth. Okay, but the systems idea that there is a system in place with people with power, absolutely, that is the case and it cannot be denied. Is systems theory the full explanation? No, and I think it keeps being proven that there are people who resist, for instance, to what's supposed to happen in the system, and they are successful, and they are able to change the system because there are weaknesses in the system or the system is not even fully understood because it can never be. Because so long as you have human beings, it remains unpredictable, and you have things in there that you can never explain with a social theory because you have human beings, and they have a free will, and their free will is a lot bigger and a lot stronger than any system can predict. But that, that's the bottom line that we believe in. Not necessarily every sociologist out there. Yeah, that's an excellent, uh, excellent remark about systems. No more questions? We're good? So we know what's our homework for next time. Maybe look into the state of information and where we find it, where we find ourselves in it for, for the future. 
وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين